1: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome John Turen, who is president of Sustainable Food Systems, LLC. Most importantly, he is a chef that has gone from traditional food systems to sustainable ones, and he is going to explain his story to us. Welcome, John.
0: Thanks, Melinda.
1: I have to ask you first, what led you to become a chef?
0: I think it was my mother getting tired of hearing me ask when dinner was going to be ready. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously, uh, that as well as starting out working in restaurants at a young age and then eventually falling completely head over heels in love with food and then attending a culinary school back a long time ago on a planet far, far away to become uh, skilled in the arts of culinary fields.
1: Well, you haven't always been embracing the whole idea of sustainability, and that happened during the course of your career, and I wonder if you can describe what happened.
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely. I love to tell this story. Uh, I had worked for quite a number of years in, uh, in institutional food service, and institutional food service, as the best way I find defining it, is serving a lot of meals to a lot of people for a little bit of money. Uh, so this had been in schools, colleges, hospitals, and places to this effect, where we took a lot of pride in, in the work and the food that we prepared and served to so many people, but our primary focus was always, uh, was primarily generally on the bottom line, on cost and customer satisfaction, but always came back to cost and, and the impact that it would have. So my decisions and, and my experiences in, in managing both as a chef and as, a, as an executive food service director at multiple colleges and schools were based on dollars and cents, uh, but that all changed literally and in one, over the course of uh, several years, but in one moment, uh, in the in November of 2001, while I was the executive chef at Yale University, and at that time, I was responsible for providing food to 6,000 undergraduates, to uh, three times a day, seven days a week, and I was, at this particular moment, if you could imagine, I was out at the Yale Bowl on this Friday afternoon, In November, getting ready to serve a picnic lunch in the following day to about 6,000 rather inebriated expected college students for what it was called the game, which was the Yale-Harvard football game. Well, my cell phone rang and my boss told me to stop what I was doing and meet him at the president's office to meet with a parent and at the time I, I said, you know, I, I, you know I'm busy here. This is a little, this is, uh, you know, something that you usually deal with with parents. And I've never been called to the president's office. What's going on? Who is this? And he said, it's Alice Waters <laughs> is the parent here who wants to meet with and, and get a tour. Well, Alice arguably at the time and still to this day is the, uh, the godmother of the sustainable, organic, local food movement, and the restaurateur of literally, Melinda, well, the, the that month's Gourmet Magazine had ranked it the number one restaurant in the United States wow. in November 2001. And this woman wanted to meet with me. and <laughs> I, I. So the first thing I had to do was pick up my cell phone off the ground. <laughs> right. The second was to stop stuttering and go meet her. To, to fast forward the story, I guess at this point was, uh, she had convinced the university to stop and, and start looking differently at the at the way that they were providing food to so many of our countries and world's leaders in, in the quality of the food that they were serving and she advocated for serv- providing a more sustainable food program and the proverbial stuff, as you know, rolls downhill and came to uh the, the delegation came to yours truly, the executive chef and the um, John, figure this out. We want to put a sustainable food program here. And I said, Great. And I love challenges and projects and this is no this would be my next one. I have one question. What is sustainable food?
1: Exactly. That was going to be a question I had for you.
0: Well, and that therein lies the definition that, that I came to learn. It was what I call then the epiphany moment of saying, look, we just uh we those of us that provide food for so many people, have a, have a responsibility way beyond the bottom line, way beyond dollars and cents. It's now about common sense. So, I define sustainable food, Melinda, as really four pillars. If you could imagine this in your mind's eye, the first pillar is the environmental impact that food production today has on our planet, uh, whether it's chemicals, pesticides, water consumption, just the earth, and, and our hunger for lots of food very cheaply has had some tremendous negative impacts on the planet. The second pillar of sustainability in food is what I call the sustainability of our local communities and small businesses and small farms. So, you know, supporting the little guys the disappearing little people as opposed to big multi-million dollar agribusiness companies or worldwide companies. It's back to keeping dollars in our communities and supporting that. Um, The third pillar is really more focused on the the social issues surrounding food production today or better defined as animal welfare, uh, human rights, the way people uh, are treated and animals are treated, you know, living beings and Unfortunately, the negative impact that uh, has had on, on large-scale food production. And having worked at a college campus uh, at the time, you could imagine college students and that being really a, a rallying, polarizing point. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth pillar of sustainability when it comes to food is the sustainability of ours and our customers' health and well-being, our bodies, the sustainability of our bodies and the food that we consume can actually have a negative impact on all of these four pillars. And I could talk an hour on each of them, and obviously we don't have that, but if you if your listeners just stop and think for a second here, those four pillars of sustainability in, when it comes to food are all different, but yet all interconnected. And the fact that our choices when it comes to food could actually have a negative impact on each and every one of those is alarming to say the least and to say that, you know, me as in a role providing food to so many people, once I realized this, could said to myself, I cannot go back to prioritizing food the way I used to. What I used to think were priorities were minor. The impact that my decisions have now on so much and so many people around us, it has to change. So, that was the moment that triggered what it was that I was going to need to do for the future and the first step was executing and creating a sustainable food program at Yale uh, subsequently at that point was uh once we succeeded and so I saw that the processes and methods that it can happen it can work in an institutional model i said to myself and to the people that i that had nurtured and, and i'd worked for for so many years over the over the course of years it's time for me to to go out now and help others and that was six years ago and now i do this and i'm I'm actually talking to you from a school in northern massachusetts where we're doing this so it's possible everywhere
1: well and i should let our listeners know that if you go to the sustainable food systems website your vision is clearly printed to make the world a better place through better food it's a simple sentence but it encompasses all of those pillars that you described You know, John, I could not agree with you more because the reason why I became a dietitian was because I feel so strongly that food is medicine on many levels, on all four of those pillars, actually. And when I was reading some of the articles about the work that you've done, I really got chills as a professional who truly cares about the relationship of food to society. There was one article where you had done some work in Idaho, for example, and you were working with the St. Luke's. Wood River Medical Center. And there's a quote here that says, well, I can eat my chicken fried steak and have my heart attack right here. I'm already in the hospital. And we laugh about that. I mean, you know, myself included, because it's such a, a comical way to state it. But in truth, this is how the majority of our healthcare institutions look. They are creating the problem that they are treating. And on my darker, more cynical moments, uh, sometimes I think, gosh, is this the way they've planned it so that the hospitals stay in business if we continue to feed people this horrific food? But what I found so interesting about this this article was that it disputed a lot of the barriers that come to the fore, the biggest barrier, of course, being cost. Well, that's a great idea, but, you know, it's going to cost more money and we can't do it but you showed that it can be done. So tell me a little bit about how you've overcome those cost barriers and people who raise that red flag.
0: Sure. As I mentioned, I learned how to enhance and change and improve food programs on the fly when we had to do this at Yale. And the principles and the practices that I've come to find successfully will work anywhere and proven fact that never to fail is this uh, balanced approach to sustainable food change is what I call it. And, and really, it's a way of holistically looking at changing a, a dietary program anywhere. Well, let's talk about a hospital, for instance. So the way we do this is we call it a five spokes of a wheel. And if you know a wheel re- that requires spokes, any of these spokes are missing, the wheel isn't going to roll for long. It's going to have, it's going to suffer. So, our objective, or your objective, or your listeners' objective, is to have a, a solid, well-grounded, sustainable food program that is represented by this wheel. So, we have the spokes that are addressed. The first one, but only one, is the food and where, you know, where it comes from, how is it grown, who do we support, all the issues around the food, the quality of the food, but that's only one spoke on the wheel. So we have to look at all these issues. Another spoke on the wheel is the facilities and the infrastructure we've got to work with. And every place is different. We've been in some of these kitchens. You've been in some of these kitchens. Your listeners have. We're, we're challenged. So we have to make sure we develop food changes that adhere to the infrastructure dealing with the facility spoke. The third spoke on the wheel is now we start getting involved beyond the, the the food service representatives and the dietitians. Is, we call it community. It's the family responsible for the entire food service program at an institution. In the hospital sense, uh, we're talking about not just the food service department, but the, the dietitians, the administration, nursing representatives, customer patient representatives. So a, a well supported community. Has got to be involved with all aspects of the change program. The fourth spoke on the wheel is communication. That's that's the messages giving and taking. Whether it's teaching and training the staff how to cook, how to prepare food differently. Whether it's marketing and merchandising to the customers. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. So they buy into what the changes are, etc. Those are the only issues on the communication spoke on the wheel. But that's only four spokes. Of a five-spoke wheel, Melinda, the fifth spoke is fiscal responsibility. So eventually, you knew. I guess I'd get to the uh-huh. question. So none of this can happen. I've yet to work at, at any place that, that where I, you know, we said, "Don't worry, it's okay. Let's spend more money." Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not. It's not the way any of us can afford to work. So we have to look at ways. To start balancing approaches where we can start investing and spending more money in certain areas and saving in others. And some of those ways are, you know, better management of food production so that we're not wasting food, therefore spending less in the first place on the, you know, on the amount of food or the amount that we're throwing out and, and, and spending on waste management. I could go on and on and on, but you know, some of the issues would be buying more in season from local vendors, if that's what we want to, so the cost, so the product doesn't cost more. Or in bulk, I, there are many examples that I could bring up about saving money and bulk purchases, therefore eliminating waste and, and having the per unit cost actually be less. So when all five spokes of the wheel are addressed and addressed simultaneously, that wheel is going to roll. That wheel, which represents a successful sustainable food program, will roll. And it's going to roll on and on and it's about you know, incremental but uh, con- continuous change. So mm-hmm. it's impossible to fail. It mm-hmm. really is. So, you know, to, to address all these in this holistic system it, mm-hmm. uh, makes me smile.
1: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Chef John Turin. He is the president of Sustainable Food Systems. Their vision and mission is making the world a better place through better food. And John works with all sorts of institutions, from hospitals to schools. I wonder, John, have you worked with prisons?
0: You know, I have not yet, Melinda. Uh, the
1: keyword word is yet.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Another barrier that often comes up, in addition to the, the economic one being the big one, Is the access, and I I was really intrigued actually by your model because you have a menu of services and you've got a threefold service where you identify and plan. What are the opportunities for implementing? And I like this way of of phrasing it, simple yet sustainable change. And then you help people describe how are you going to implement the suggested changes. And so you provide linkages with local food producers. And then finally, you offer assessment and support, which is critical because evaluation is at the heart, I think, of proving success. Well, let's go back to that finding linkages with local food producers I'm not so sure there are enough local food producers to meet the demand, say, even within my own community. Are you finding that as well?
0: Yep. Uh, yes, I am. I, you know, I think uh, the, the, the demand and the growth for good quality local food with a good story behind it is growing and growing and growing. And unfortunately, the the amount of small artisan or even mid-sized farmers are not compatible to the demand right now. It's on the cusp of becoming uh, more more demand than can possibly be supplied. And unfortunately, that's not the direction we want it to, to tip. So what we need to happen is we need more local producers. I mean, the average age of farmer in this country, I think, and don't quote me anybody, but it's well up in the high 50s. Or that's
1: right. Like, it's 57.
0: 57. Yeah. And That's not sustainable. Right. Um, uh, We need, you know, we need more. So we need to, we need to tip to have more. Literally, and, and and I'm talking about institutional food service here. So to be able to supply that kind of demand where there's significant quantity needed, we need more mid-sized farms. Not so much the small artisan farmers that are going to farmers markets. They're wonderful and and we use them in our home and, and everybody should. But for, for so the volume that's required in our schools and our hospitals and colleges, we need the mid sized uh, farmers that can produce some decent quantity, and we, and, and we need our institutions to start thinking differently as well to start building that demand. You know, they start, need to start thinking seasonably. Food has a season. Mm-hmm. It really does. And, that, and that when you eat in season, it's more cost-effective, and it's more delicious, and i believe more you know healthier for us and we get away, and we have to to get to that point we have to start cooking again in these institutions and stop heating right um, so much of the food is processed heat and serve food so again I, I think you're right we need to be careful or we're going to tip the the supply and demand the wrong way we need we need to show those that are interested in business in these mid-sized farms that there's a demand there and hopefully more and more people will get into that.
1: Well, it looks to me like a perfect opportunity for green jobs and especially with our young people that seem to actually have a desire to work with their hands and work on the land. It's very exciting. The The key is putting the pieces together and that's where I see your role being so important in this true revolution of how we eat. I know I sometimes I look at hospitals or schools and I see this massive lawn and I know they're mowing it every, you know, week or so and I think, oh, turn that into a garden. And I wonder, I know there are examples of institutions that have done just that. I wonder too if you've seen relationships with farmers where perhaps the farmer was struggling, but once they they got a contract with an institution, the farmer was able to stay on their farm and live a, an economically viable life.
0: yeah you know not, uh, not enough, but you know the, the the issue of contracting with between farmers and institutions is just beginning to take hold uh, theres There's various variables that have come into play, uh, one being the institutions are so used to. Not having to worry about getting what they need because it comes whatever we need comes anytime anyplace anywhere. Right. So there needs to be that flexibility from the buyers and in the institutions to say I need to be able to be adaptable because otherwise the farmer gets put in a vice where they say you know well, what happens what, you know if I, if you want a contract with me what happens if I can't what happens is an act of God or something mm-hmm. that you know, pr- prevents me. So there are, there are a lot of Long boring issues that surround the contracting, but the more you know, the more and more this is happening. Right now, we're working with three institutions in Westchester County, New York, where we're trying to pull them together to do exactly this and to create a demand with with some local farms. So um, it's beginning to happen. I know some cases where a grass fed beef farmer in Connecticut has been able to move his ground beef to schools. Because they can afford that, and his high-end beef is going to the, re- the white tablecloth restaurants, his steaks and roasts. But yet, the schools can take the, you know, all the ground beef off his hands. So mm-hmm. that's an example of an institution working with a farmer to to help, uh, you know, hand in hand.
1: And do you find there are barriers to farmers? I'm thinking specifically from my own piece of the world where I I hear farmers tell me I've got the product. I don't have a mechanism through which to get it to the institution who would really like to have it. Maybe it's infrastructure that there isn't the processing infrastructure or there isn't this person like yourself who can make those linkages.
0: Yes, uh, the distribution getting items from point A to point B is, o- is often w- another big challenge or, or potential roadblock. Um, there are some ways to get around it, to try to come up with a cost effective middleman or person to manage the process with a with a small distribution company there are, what we don't want to have Melinda is literally the the managers from these institutions getting in their cars and going out and picking up all these things because that's not sustainable right you know it's got it's got to be some kind of a system of processing and distribution and money is, uh, is coming, coming around to, to develop these type of things.
1: John, let's talk about the third component of, from your menu of services, and that is assessment and support. I'm sure you've seen great success with the interventions that you've had with institutions, and I wonder if you could describe a little bit of those positive success stories that will make everyone run out and want to talk to you tomorrow and find out how they, too, can become a more sustainable institution
0: sure you know it's what we call uh once we have put in some of the practices this uh third, third phase is kind of uh checking the wind adjusting the sails and maximizing efficiency uh, uh everything everything changes and we need to adapt to it as we go so uh i mean some of the success stories that that i would come up with it's i, I think the people have asked me what's the most rewarding part of doing what i do and that is seeing the, the, the folks who originally were the most afraid of change or, or you know, the biggest naysayers, resistors, actually become the, the advocates, the, the, the disciples for change, not unlike I did, you know, when mm-hmm. I was asked to do this. So, you know, to see the food service director at a school who um, now take charge and start working with teachers to get their classes connected with, you know, the curriculum connected with the kitchen as a laboratory.
1: Exactly.
0: And the dining hall should be a classroom. And seeing, you know, seeing some of the initiatives of building the bridge of curriculum into the the dining halls when it comes to schools, and that's part of the communication spoke on the wheel. You know, everything has a place in that model. Uh, That's one, you know, that's an example there.
1: I wonder... I, you know, in my heart, I just know that people who have a better diet in hospitals are going to heal faster. And I just wonder if anyone is keeping tabs on healing rates uh, in hospitals where the food system has changed.
0: I guess that's a pro- another project. Another, another pro- that would be the
1: fourth item on oh, your menu right. of services, right? Uh,
0: it's, but it's a great you know, it's a great analogy, you know. Uh, uh, there's so much advancement in, in healthcare food service in the last five years. I mean, we talk about room service. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and service is part of, you know, our, the, the way we present and consume and, and taste and that's, that experience is part of our food system. Yes. Yeah. And that makes or breaks sometimes our view on, on what things are. So what a, what a wonderful way to tie in the, the the story behind the food itself when you're doing something like, a, you know, a wonderful room service program, which I think is fantastic in many most of the places I've seen.
1: Absolutely, and talk about a great way to reduce waste. I mean, that just makes perfect sense. I can't tell you how many trays of uneaten food I recall seeing because the meal came, but the patient was down at a test, for example. So it's a great way to improve sustainability. Um, We only have a couple more minutes, so I, I just want to let our listeners know that you have worked with really famous people in the foodie world. You've worked with Jamie Oliver. You've worked with Sam Cass, who is the White House chef. But I want to give you an opportunity in the minutes remaining to let our listeners know any salient points that you've gotten from working with individuals and working all over the country to create these sustainable food systems.
0: Oh, salient points. I guess it's not, to, not to be afraid of believing in your own passion and, uh, and, and commitments. Uh, I think of, you know, the opportunities working with Jamie Oliver, uh, and people watch him, love him or hate him. Yeah. Uh, one, whichever, I gotta tell, I, I have to say that it's not fake and what he's like Off camera is even more intense than what he's like on camera, and the love for children and 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 commitment to say what we need we need someone needs to stand up and take a look at the impact that food has on on the future of our kids. Um, The the passion of of being fearless uh, is is something that I've taken from you know from working with him. you know the same with Alice. When, <clears throat> having had the opportunity after with Alice Waters, uh, was I uh, you know I told I, I I told people that you know she should be committed um, because she is committed. And, <laughs> yes. And, and I mean that in the most respectful way possible. That there is no gray. It's you know it's black or white. And I learned from her that you know stick with your beliefs and don't be afraid to to. To, to stay that course and not back down and compromise
1: well John I unfortunately our time is up but that is a wonderful send off message and I want to just let our listeners know in closing that we have been speaking with Chef John Turan, who is the president of Sustainable Food Systems LLC the website is www.sustainablefoodsystems.com and your vision to make the world a better place through better food for future generations is absolutely perfect In closing, let me remind our listeners that we have been producing Food Sleuth Radio at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. John, I want to thank you so much for your time today and sharing your work and passion.
0: You're welcome, and thank you, Melissa.